I want to speak to you tonight again about my Saviour, and I want to read to you, if you read with me, from John's Gospel, chapter 7, and from verse 37 to 52. And uh, as I read it, you will spot, I'm sure, the verse I'm going to talk to you about. John chapter 7 and verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Hasn't the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to see the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? They answered and said to him, You also from Galilee, search out and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. God bless the reading of his holy and infallible word. It's verse 46. No man ever spoke like this man that I want to talk to you, the prophetic ministry of the Lord Jesus. Okay? John seven forty six. Jesus had a flesh and blood existence in this world, didn't he? Grew in favour with man, and people said to Mary, you've got a wonderful boy there, as he delivered window frames and doorposts and cupboards and chairs to the people he and his father made for them. Um, He moved freely in human society. You'd find him in a wedding. You'd find him eating in a friend's house. He was born under Pontius Pilate. And he shared men's joys and sorrows. He lived in close proximity to all that's commonplace that uh, you and I know in our lives too. He was open to observation and questioning and inspection And we know that at many points he made a remarkable impression on the people who saw him and listened to him. He he had remarkable presence. You knew there was something about this man. And then he was remarkable in his works. The things he did just caused amazement. The healings, 
the speaking to the winds and the waves and so on. But maybe most of all, he was remarkable because of his words. And that's what our text tells us. No man ever spoke like the Lord Jesus. It was what he said and how he said it that blew their minds. You know the story in verse 32, the the Pharisees have sent their private police to arrest him and bring him in for questioning. You know, police everywhere. And uh, so they go to arrest him. He's speaking in in the temple and uh, it, the place is packed. They're standing on walls and children are being lifted up by their parents to hear, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, he's saying. And, no, and they try to push their way through, these bully boys. But no one gives way because they want to hear these words. And then as they grate to a halt, they come under the spell. They come under the influence and they listen and listen. And then Jesus ends and he goes off and they're all very quiet. And they remember their mission and they go back empty-handed to the Pharisees and they say, where is he? And all they can say is, never man spoke like this man. I want to explore that with you tonight. I want to ask what was significant about the teaching and the ministry, the words of Jesus Christ that created such an impression. What was it that men found so arresting and so impressive? Uh, utterly unusual. I have three points. My first point is it was the authority with which Jesus spoke. That's my first point. The people said to one another, he speaks with authority, not like the scribes. The scribes occupied the pulpits of the um, of the synagogues and when they preached they just um, quoted Rabbi Hillel has said this about this subject but Rabbi so and so has said this about it and then there's another Rabbi and he had and they hid behind other men Jesus never did that, did he? Um, Jesus didn't even say, thus saith the Lord. Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you. He was conscious of the underivedness of his message. Whereas they were conscious that they were just parroting what other men had said in the past. Christ never quotes human authority, never quotes a rabbi, never shelters behind the opinions of someone else. He doesn't say, that saith the Lord. He says, it is written. But he says, but I say unto you. And he puts his own teaching over against all the popular opinions that were held by the Pharisees who had been 200 years now having enormous influence. In, in Judea 
and he continues to speak. He speaks in his own name. He speaks magisterially. He speaks on his own authority, and he legislates on the independent basis of his own status, of his own insights. He tells us, for example, that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He tells us that he has authority to forgive sins. He pronounces on oaths. He pronounces on divorce. He pronounces on scripture itself. And he does so constantly and continually in his own name. He sets up his great, but I say unto you, as over against all the rabbinic traditions quoted by uh, the scribes in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So there is his independence of thought. His originality. That was one thing that made people say no one ever spoke like him. And secondly, in, in, alongside that, there is his tremendous cogency. Now that's an interesting word, isn't it? It means then that he was convincing, that he was clear, that he was lucid, that he was forcible, that there was something beautiful about his aphorisms, the little sayings that have lived on and we all know them, that he spoke so that people pricked up their ears and listened and a memory cell attached itself to that phrase and to that parable and never forgot it. The common people heard him gladly. So his teaching was singularly profound. It was constantly provocative and controversial. But there was something about him. I went back to him and they looked and they listened and they sat as close to him as they could, like Mary did, because she didn't want to miss anything that he said. You know, we find in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, um, that having listened to that great, complex, logical discourse, the people go away impressed, not so much with what he has taught them, but with him. His authority, his cogency, the attractiveness of what he had to say. And they found that very impressive. You know, the devils trembled when Jesus spoke. And it seems to me that one of the great lessons we learn from that is that the antidote to doubt, to uncertainty in our own hearts, is to make it a habit of going back constantly to the New Testament Gospels and reading them, reading them in big chunks in large consecutive doses. I mean, we should go back to the Gospel of Mark on a Sunday afternoon. It'll take you, I suppose, hour and a quarter to read those 16 chapters, to do that, um, and see how it supports the authority of the claims that Jesus makes because the real cogency is just 
opening ourselves to this extraordinary personality in history who in time and space said these words and let his teaching fall into our hearts as we listen, opening ourselves uninhibitedly to his personality. J. Gresham Machen, one of my great heroes who died in 1937 and uh, championed the Christian faith and wrote 100 years ago this year his wonderful book, Christianity and Liberalism. And you know, um, he did so well in Princeton that the faculty sent him to Germany, into the fulcrum of liberalism. And he would sit in the lecture rooms there in Marburg and Göttingen, those continental lecture rooms with a lot of other theological students. And the man he he listened to weren't dry as dust. But their faces glowed and their eyes sparkled as they spoke enthusiastically about the new Jesus that they had discovered. The Jesus of the brotherhood of man. And they spoke. Man, the man went away. Isn't that wonderful? And nature reeled it wasn't the Jesus that his mother had spoken to him about all the days they'd grown up together. It wasn't the, the Jesus that he, that he heard in the church he went to every Sunday in the Sunday school. This was a different Jesus. And you go back to his room, you pick up Mark's gospel and just read it, read it all the way through reassuring, redefining, relearning, re-meeting this Jesus, this historic Jesus, leaving the self-attesting quality of his life and his teaching fall into his mind and capturing his affections. So um, they said no one ever spoke to him I spoke like he spoke, and I said the first thing um, uh, about that was his originality and independence of thought, and secondly, it was the cogency of his personality and his teaching. And the third thing about the authority with which he spoke was the tremendous confidence he had in the relevance of what he had to say to everyone listening to him. I'll break that down for you now. Um, when he finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount, you know how it ends with a parable, doesn't it? We all know it, a beautiful parable, and the children sing it. A wise man built his house upon the rock. It's, it's lovely, isn't it? You all know it. And the winds blew, and the, wind, the, the rain fell on the house, and it stood now, our Lord knew about 2023. He knew about that. He knew he would have a people in 2023. He knew what pressures we would be under to deny him and invent our own lords and our own gods. He knew what floods and winds were going to break across 
the Christian, the waves of persecution and the waves of historical research and the waves of philosophical speculation and the waves of an ungodly media, the waves of scientific pretension, and they would beat and they wouldn't stop. But he was absolutely confident that every human life that said, no, I'm going to believe the Bible and I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, that that foundation would mean you could survive. He was convinced of that. We find in him then not just an independence of thought and an authority and a compulsiveness and compellingness and cogency with his teaching but an unshakable confidence that what he said was relevant to every one of you here tonight. There's nothing more relevant to your life and to your future than the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is invulnerable to every kind of assault, every kind of contempt, every kind of sarcasm, every kind of comedian, Whatever men would do to his word, however they would attack it, that will endure. The word of the Lord endures forever. And I want us tonight to face the reality of Jesus' authority. That we should pause we, as we listen to these men who heard him preach and had been just overwhelmed and said, never did a man speak like that before. Never heard anything like that before. Nowhere in the whole realm of human literature can we find discourses that can compare to those of Jesus. You know, the, the Bible itself, this, this book that you've got in front of you now, this extant reality, this book is a miracle. You know, there was the great stress from the 60s onwards that we needed miracles, you know. My friends, we meet in the presence of a miracle every single Sunday, morning and evening. This is a word that comes from another world. This is something utterly unique in its independence of thought, in its compellingness of tone in its utter confidence that's relevant. It's relevant to me now, tonight, for what I'm facing on a Monday and all through the years of my life. And sometimes when I have battles with doubt, I say to myself, I've got the Bible. I've got this great intrusion, this book that comes from another world where I can hear the unique utterances of the Son of God. You know, I've seen human... I was a reader as a boy. 100 yards, there was the Carnegie Library, and I went there twice a week at least. I read it dry. And growing up, I was the same. I read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Pasternak and Solzhenitsyn and the American writers, all of the best. Here in this book, there is something discontinuous with men's writings, something splendid, something unique. Here are words that know me, 
Here are words that describe me. Here are words that search me out and find me. Here are words that speak to my need at every stage of my life. Here are words that are unsurpassing in their grandeur and uninventable in their sheer originality. And there are times when I say this, if there were no God, I'd worship the God who wrote the Bible. Because no man ever spoke like this man. Nobody. No, not the prophets, not Moses. Only him. So he spoke with authority and he spoke with cogency. That was my first point. The second thing why people said about him, no one ever spoke like him, is because of the tremendous claims that he made about himself. Staggering claims that he made. There's this claim, for example, that he is the one who's going to judge the world. Matthew 25, he describes the one day the world is going to stand before and he's going to separate. He's going to evaluate. There's a day of evaluation coming before us all. It's appointed unto us to die and to be evaluated. We live in a moral universe. And what men reap, that is what they're going to sow. And he tells us all the world is going to stand before him and he will determine their destinies. Come ye blessed, depart ye cursed. He said this. He said this, a carpenter's son, Jesus of Nazareth, in all his vulnerability, there was nothing distinctive. There wasn't a halo around his head that followed him around wherever he went. He was found in fashion as a man. He looked utterly human. He looked only human. They knew his roots. They knew his antecedents. They knew something of his development. Biographically, they knew his mother and esteemed his mother and they knew he'd lost his father, I presume, and he was a carpenter. And, and he stands and he says, one day he is going to judge the world. He's going to sit on God's throne and he will arbitrate. He will decide the eternal destiny of every one of us, of every one of you and me. We are facing here a self-consciousness of staggering proportions. There's nothing ordinary about this man who says he's going to judge the world. He's not talking about judging Palestine or the Middle East or even his generation. All humanity. He judged the angels. But then there is something even more striking about this judgment. 
not only will he judge the world, but the criteria, the standards by which he will judge are this, how men were related to him. He would say to them, I didn't know you. You know, in the Bible, knowledge is something affectionate, not just encyclopedic. They would claim that in his name they cast out demons. They would claim that in his name they did many wonderful works. I didn't know you. He's saying the decisive thing about your history and my history is whether Christ knew us, whether he loved us. He said this, if a man is ashamed of me, then I I will be ashamed of him in that great day. It depends on your relationship with God the Son. It's the great humanitarian parable of the sheep and the goats and the separation of them and the commendation of those that are sheep is you fed the hungry, you clothed the naked, you visited those in prison, you nursed those that were sick. And they will say, when did we do that? As much as you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. When you were patient, answering the phone, when she called you and said, oh, I don't feel well tonight, come over and see me, I'm depressed again, and you were kind to her, asking God to help you. Christ was in that poor Christian woman in all her dilemmas. Here is Jesus in all his frailty, apparently, the meek, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And he is saying that the decisive thing in the eternity of of every one of us is our attitude to him. How we related to him, how we treated him, how we treated those that belong to him. He's the judge. And the standard is man's relationship to him. All right. He goes on. He claims to be the judge. He claims pre-existence. He said, before Abram was, I am. He stands in the middle of time. They've known him. Some of the people in Nazareth knew him as a baby, as a boy, as a teenager, adolescent, as a young man, and now in his full manhood. And here he is, and he says, before Abram was, I am, I go back, I go back beyond Abraham. He doesn't even say before Abram was, I was. Before Abram was, I am. He uses the great word from the burning bush where God manifests himself there to Moses. Tell them, I am, has sent you to release them from slavery. I am, I'm the being one, I go back. I go back into eternity. He claims he's the judge. He claims the standard of judgment is were we ashamed of him? 
Did we do his will? Did we belong to him? He claims pre-existence. No man ever spoke like him. He claimed to be absolute God. He said, I and my Father are one. You know, it doesn't matter where you probe the scriptures. If you probe the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, or John's gospel, what you'll find will be a divine Christ. A Christ who makes the most astonishing claims or inspiring claims that he is one with God, that he is Jehovah Jesus, that he has utter and absolute deity. You know, John's Gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it ends with Thomas falling at his feet and saying, My Lord and my God. The child in the manger, the infant of Mary, in all his frailty, in all his humanness, is making this astonishing claim. And in many ways, the challenge of the message that comes from this pulpit to the message of the gospel is the challenge of the self-consciousness of Jesus. The Lord's claim to be God the one who made the universe, the one who upholds the universe, the one who will judge it and consummate it. That's the Lord's claim. He made you. He made you. Not you made yourself. He's your Lord. He's your God. I'm not confronting you with an emotional challenge tonight. I'm speaking to your minds, to your thinking. I want you to bring your mind with you every Sunday when you come to church and think about what you are hearing. The challenge of the gospel is an intellectual challenge. It's the challenges, the veracity, the truthfulness of the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how you feel tonight. Are you still wrestling with my accent? You're, you're rather bored. I'm going on so long. You're curious. Maybe it's not. Maybe you're being strangely warmed, as John Wesley was. My challenge has nothing to do with a thermometer that tests your feelings. It's this indisputable fact Here is a man who walked this earth and he claimed to be God. He claimed to be your God. He claimed to be your Lord. And I'm saying you must bow before him, not because you feel something, not because you have goose flesh or the hairs on the back of your head are standing on edge and that's a reason to think that you're being converted. I'm not saying that. If what Jesus Christ says is true, 
you must bow to him. And that's quite independent of how you feel. You might feel he is God, you might feel he has no fear, you might feel no warmth at all. The question is, is what Jesus says truth? Because if it's truth, it has the most momentous consequences. If what he says is true and we reject it, we are going to hell. If what he says is true and we receive it into our lives, we have eternal life. He becomes our saviour. You know, I'm standing tonight in the middle of the New Testament and all its streams are flowing around me. The Synoptic Gospels, John's Gospel, John's Letters, the writings of Paul and Peter and James and Jude. Everywhere I probe, I find a colossal Christ. I find a divine Christ. I find what, in the end, you who don't believe must dismiss as a megalomaniac Christ. If what he says is not true, he's crazy. Have you considered his claims? Have you looked into it? Have you been reading Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and looking at that life? Have you considered the possibility that Jesus was real? Real? The true man. And what he said was truth. There'll never be a more important question that will ever be raised in your life than this. Now, you've got every right to examine it then, okay? I'll, I'll look. My friend in Prague, communist, met this girl, thought she was cute and lovely and, oh, she was a Christian. Right, he said. I'll get the Bible and I'll read it and sort her out. And you know what happened. That's why he's my friend. The Bible sorted him out, didn't it? And he's a preacher in Prague uh, today. You've got no right not to do it. I never read that Gideon Bible. You can't say that. You're running away from something. You're afraid, aren't you? You're afraid of my saviour. People are afraid of conversion. They, they can live with certain things and they don't want to give up. And that's what happens. I'm saying, have you pondered the claims of Christ? Because if they are true, we bow before him, we sing to him. We speak to him. We commit our life to pleasing him. You say, well, I don't feel anything. <laughs> I'm not talking about your feelings. I'm talking about the historical fact that in one place where a degree of latitude crosses a degree of longitude in history, Jesus Christ stood. And he said, I and my father are one.
Now, those are the words of a maniac, if they're not the words of God the Son. And I'm saying, if they're God the Son, you bow. You bow your head. You bend your life. You submit to him. The God who spoke through Moses and the prophets, the God who speaks in your conscience, he's speaking to you personally now. Yes, Lord. You know, there's only one great reason that every one of us here tonight should be Christians. And that is because it's true. The third day he rose from the dead. And it's true. One day he's coming back to judge the world. And it's true. And it transforms my life then. The truth does. The truth frees me. It commands, it deserves, it compels my allegiance. You know, some days I feel quite religious. Some days I feel like a minister. The case for Christianity doesn't fluctuate with my feelings. The case rests on the objective truth of what this man said. I'm going to judge the world. I and my Father are one. And I want you to stand on that. I stand on Jesus Christ. My last point then of um, explaining to you why men said of Jesus, no one ever spoke like him. Never because they did it because not only his authority and his cogency and his magnificent promises, um, but, but because of his magnificent promises, not because of his claims, but his promises. Now, there are exceeding great and precious promises he made. And you know them. I go to prepare a place for you. He who lives and believes in me will never die. I'll be with you always. I don't want to look at those. Just one promise. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. You all know it. It trips off our tongues. We're blind to the glory of what Jesus says here. There's nothing anywhere in John's gospel that is as magnificent as Matthew 11. Come unto me and I will give you rest. You see what he's saying? Let all of America come. Let the whole world come. If tonight Jesus was here, then everybody would come from Jackson and the roads would be blocked and he could give everyone rest. Every single one. I have such competence, such power, I have such authority, I have such love, I have such understanding of the human heart, I have such compassion that I can give everybody 
in the world rest. Suppose everyone comes with their antagonisms. Suppose the women come with their phobias. And the teenagers come with their restlessness. I can deal. I can deal with it all, he says. The great physician looks at this sick world. He says, you come. You come to me. Come with your maladies. Come with your disorders. Come with your depressions, your diseases, your problems, your burdens. I can relieve you of them. Suppose you all come. You all tonight now come to this one man, this Jesus. As I said to you, he's not in the front, so I'm not going to ask you to come to the front, but I've planted the seeds of truth in your mind, in your conscience, in your understanding. You have it. The word is near you then. He's there. He's alongside you. He's with you. You come to him. He will give you rest. Men and women, this is so extraordinary God, isn't it? If he looks at Jackson and the suburbs, unless so ordinary men and women, and he loves us. He loves us so much. He's brought us here tonight. He's brought you all here tonight. Not, not to meet me. But he's brought you here to meet him. The Jesus who walks his aisle now and nudges you. And hey, I, I've told you about myself. And you're saying, no one ever said the things you, you're saying. No one ever will. And he makes this wonderful promise. If you come to me, you will have rest. John Wesley said, my people die well. They die at rest. Because they know the first face they see will be the face that was spat upon for them. And the first voice they hear will be Jesus saying, well done, welcome, smiling at them. And when they see him, they are transformed. Doubt gone, lust gone, greed gone. Him, their eternal friend, Jesus. A rest which they had known now, infinitely, eternally expanded, caressing them, keeping them. You can't understand, really. I can't understand how someone can hear how wonderful Jesus is and not be praying, Lord, I'm coming. There's no one else who will ever charm me. You have the words of eternal life. And I'll die without you. I'm coming. You come. You come just as you are. You come to this Savior tonight. It's just a movement of submission, of repentance that you hadn't come much sooner. And now, not for the years of time alone, we say, but eternally.
your best friend, your teacher, your protecting king, and the Lamb of God who takes our sin away. Our Heavenly Father, bless your word to us. Magnify Jesus Christ in us by the change of life that we live ever only all for you. Grant that blessing on us, we pray, through your own saving, sanctifying, regenerating work now quietly in our hearts and make us from now on to live for Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.